Hello and welcome to this fifth talk on the Sermon on the Mount. And I can hardly believe that this is the fifth talk on chapter five, that it's taken five talks even to scrape the surface of the fifth chapter of this great book of Matthew. The standard for living that Jesus is demanding of us in the sermon is getting harder and harder and it climaxes in this chapter in its last verse. And some people look at this and say, well, it's impossible. Jesus couldn't possibly have meant us to have kept it in this world as it is now. Surely he, needs, he meant this for another age, perhaps heaven or, or no, the millennium. What about the millennium? Should we put the Sermon on the Mount into the millennium period so that believers should follow it then? But, but no, Jesus was teaching his followers in the then and there. And the then and there for us is the here and now today. We can't kick this sermon into the long grass and wait for another day to put it into effect. This is for us to be living as members of Jesus' kingdom now. He began with his eight Beatitudes, which we nicknamed Be-attitudes, attitudes that we should be if we were to be effective salt and light in this world. And then we noted that in this chapter six times, Jesus took an Old Testament commandment which the Pharisees were distorting and then overruled them and said, but I tell you. For example, to the Pharisees, a murder was a killing and that was a sin. But I tell you, says Jesus, that the anger which precedes murder is also sinful. And the Pharisees would have said, you shall not commit adultery, that's a sin. But Jesus says, yes, but I tell you, the lustful thought that precedes adultery is also sinful. And the Pharisees said, we can divorce our wives for any and every reason, for any cause. And Jesus said, no, I tell you, divorce should be a very rare exception. Protect your marriages. He now goes on to address other attitudes that we are to adopt. And the first is our attitude to untruthfulness. In chapter 5, verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you, made, you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now in this passage, Jesus is not talking about swearing in the sense of using bad language when, you're, when you've lost your temper. He's talking about confirming the truthfulness of your word with an oath. In Exodus chapter 20, we're told, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, do not swear falsely by my name. Numbers 30, when a man makes a vow to the Lord, he must not break his word. Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord, do not be slow to pay it. Another Pharisee said, if you make a vow or affirm something and you haven't invoked the name of the Lord, you haven't mentioned the name of Yahweh, then you don't have to keep your word. You could possibly tell an untruth. But if you've used the name of the Lord, 
then you have to keep your word. It's a binding oath. And Jesus said, no, if you swear by heaven, well, you are invoking God because that is where God rules. If you swear by the earth, you are invoking God. It's God's footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, you are invoking God because it's God's heavenly city. If you swear by your head, meaning may I lose my head, I may I lose my life if I don't keep my word or if what I'm about to say isn't true, you are invoking God because God is the creator of your head and the giver of your life. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you and I should be thoroughly truthful and transparently honest in all things at all times and never need to have to swear an oath for people to believe us. James was Jesus' brother, and in chapter 5 of his letter, he writes, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. I say, don't you think James was actually there at the time? Don't you think Jesus' brother was sitting there with this group on the mountain listening to the sermon? He didn't believe it at the time. He didn't believe in Jesus at the time. But when he was writing his letter, he remembered it and quoted it almost word for word. Honest people don't need to resort to oaths to keep a promise. Does that then preclude us from taking an oath on the Bible in court? Some people would not do that and they would prefer to affirm the truthfulness of their words, which is fine. But it seems to me that Jesus isn't setting up a rule here saying you shouldn't swear on the Bible in a court. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, in his trial in court, the high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, did Jesus refuse to answer? Did he say, you've placed me under an oath, I don't believe in oaths, so I can't possibly answer that question? No. He replied, yes, it is as you say. If you had a Christian wedding, the minister probably said something to you like this. I require and charge you both, as in the sight of God, that if either of you know any impediment why you may not lawfully be joined together in marriage, you do now confess it. The minister was calling upon you who is calling upon God to witness the fact that you are about to tell the truth about your marital status and the promises you are about to make. So here in this passage, Jesus is saying we who are prone to being dishonest and untrustworthy need to have truthful hearts. We need to have a new attitude towards honesty. Now, the next paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount is one which is thrown at us by unbelievers and derided as being ridiculous. Chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, hand over your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus here is 
giving us a new attitude to retaliation. Now in Exodus chapter 21, Moses wrote, if men are fighting and there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, bruise for bruise, and Leviticus chapter 24 as fracture for fracture. And it sounds to us barbaric. And in Saudi Arabia to this very day, under Sharia law, you will know that a thief in a public place can have his or her hand cut off by a sword. They can be amputated for the crime of stealing. If Moses were writing this in our day, he might have said, if your neighbour scratches your car, don't set her car on fire. Or if your friend slags you off on social media, don't give as good as you get. Neil Kinnock told the Labour Party at one rally before a general election, don't get mad, get even. And that's the spirit of the human heart, isn't it? It is to retaliate and to get your own back. And Jesus is modifying what Moses said, because Moses' intent was to limit barbarity. Moses' intent was to restrain punishment to fit the crime, to restrict revenge, so that if a man breaks your arm, you don't get your family to go round and murder the whole of the other family. Or if a woman steals your donkey, don't go round and burn her house down. The point of Moses' teaching was that retaliation should be limited to what is fair. But Jesus says in verse 39, do not resist an evil person. That's NIV. That's a hard text. Let me give you some other translations. Tom Wright, don't use violence to resist evil. The message, here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. Good News Bible, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Or the contemporary English version, don't try to get even with a person who has done something to you. Now, if you're not absolutely sure what that little phrase of Jesus means, he gives four little cameos to explain it. So it's quite clear to us. The first little cameo is this. Number one, turn the other cheek. Now, in the East to this day, to be struck on the right cheek by the back hand of somebody else's, uh, by, the, by the back of somebody else's right hand, it's a grave insult. You feel most humiliated by that action. And your retaliation, your instinct is to retaliate. You want to get your own back because you've been demeaned, you've been insulted, you've been derided by this other person. You want to give as good as you get. Jesus says, don't feel that way. The second cameo. If you're being sued for your tunic, hand over your coat as well. We have an attitude, what's mine is mine. But Jesus says, your attitude should be, how can I help you with what is mine? You brought me to court because I've caused you a loss. I will pay you back for that loss and some. I will pay you back more than I owe. The third cameo, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. A Roman soldier, occupying Palestine had the authority to force a Jew to carry the soldiers pack for a mile, a Roman mile. Jesus says, if you're required to do that, go, go even further, take it further than a mile. 
In other words, if somebody's overbearing and over-demanding towards you, give them more than they are demanding. And the fourth little cameo, give to the one who asks and to the one who wants to borrow. Here Jesus is saying, let generosity be the hallmark of your life, not meanness. Now, what are you to do if you see a row of beggars uh, asking for money in the street? Well, we have no reason to think that Jesus used to tell Judas Iscariot, who looked after the common purse for the 12 disciples, Jesus didn't tell Judas to give cash to every beggar that they passed in, on the wayside. Jesus isn't making rules here about how you behave towards every particular beggar. Jesus is saying your attitude should be one of generosity and not of stinginess. So in these four cameos, Jesus is saying, Christians should risk their body, they should risk their clothing, they should risk their time, and they should risk their money, even for someone who doesn't deserve it. He gives four examples of risk-taking, four examples of generous grace being shown to someone who doesn't deserve it. Isn't that just how God has behaved towards you and me? with generous grace to those who don't deserve it. Paul develops this in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle writes this. How is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not nurse a spirit of retaliation, but Jesus was gentle and generous and kind. Let me read to you part of a speech given by Dr. Benjamin Mays at the funeral of Dr. Martin Luther King. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bond, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because friends betrayed him. And yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Jesus is calling upon us in this passage to replace our vengeful hearts with kind hearts, and our grudging hearts with generous hearts. This new attitude 
is one of grace and generosity. Caroline Flack said, in a world in which you can be anything, be kind. And shortly after that, she took her own life because the world to her was unkind. Let's turn now to chapter five, verse 43. A new attitude to love. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the sixth example Jesus uses of an Old Testament law which has been distorted by the Pharisees. What it actually says in Leviticus chapter 19 is this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. The words hate your enemy are not there. Moses did not write hate your enemy. The Pharisees would have said your neighbour is a fellow Jew. So if your Jewish friend or neighbour or relative has done something against you, love that person. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against them. Love that person. But if it's a Gentile, if it's one of those uh, Gentile dogs, then hate your enemy. Spurgeon called this a parasitical growth upon God's law. Jesus says, don't hate an enemy, love your enemy and pray for them. And Luke, in his account of this sermon, chapter six, records, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, do to others as you would have them do to you, the golden rule. Now remember, love in the Bible is not so much what you feel, it's what you do. It's perfectly legitimate in Bible terms to love somebody that you dislike very, very much. Because love isn't about emotion, it's about action. So Jesus said, love your enemies, therefore pray for them. Love your enemies, therefore do good to them. Love your enemies, therefore treat them as you would like them to treat you. Proverbs chapter 25, if your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. And Paul quotes from Proverbs in Romans chapter 12. Our enemy is someone who seeks our harm. We seek their good and we start with prayer. Let me read to you a prophecy given by a Vilmar. This commandment that we should love our enemies and forego revenge will grow even more urgent in the holy struggle which lies before us. Christians will be hounded from place to place, subjected to physical assault, maltreatment and death of every kind. 
We are approaching an age of widespread persecution. Soon the time will come when we shall pray. It will be a prayer of earnest love for these very sons of perdition who stand around and gaze at us with eyes aflame with hatred and who have perhaps already raised their hands to kill us. Yes, the church which is really waiting for its Lord and which discerns the signs of the times must fling itself with its utmost power and with the panoply of its holy life into this prayer of love. This prophecy is telling about telling us about a time of persecution, physical assault, maltreatment, death. Get ready for it. And when it comes, be ready to pray for those who execute it. And that prophecy was given in the year 1880, not 1980, 1880, back then in the 19th century. And it's quoted by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in one of his works. And you remember what happened to Bonhoeffer? Under the Nazis, he was arrested, thrown into prison and hanged in 1945. Jesus says that God blesses the good and the bad with sun and with rain. We call this common grace. There are so many blessings in this life and in this world which everybody receives and everybody enjoys. There's a poem by Lord Bowen, an English judge, and he pronounces the word fella in exactly the same way as um, Superintendent Hastings in Line of Duty. The rain it raineth on the just and also on the unjust fella, but chiefly on the just because the unjust steals the just's umbrella. God is good to all. And because God is good to all, we also are required to be good to all. God's love is indiscriminate. And so our love, our care, our goodness should be indiscriminate too. After all, says Jesus in verse 46, even the tax collectors are nice to tax collectors. And if the level of love you show to nice people is, is, is if that's all it is, you're no better than a pagan. You're not following me if you're just loving people who are nice to you. You must love your enemies. You must love those who are nasty to you and want to do you an ill turn. Our enemy seeks our harm, we must seek their good. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. So in this chapter, we've seen three new attitudes. To be truthful, not devious. To be generous, not grudging. And to be loving and not hateful. As we've been going through these talks, have you been getting a bit uncomfortable? Have you been finding that the standard that Jesus is setting is just beyond reach and too far and, and you feel a million miles away from this standard of living which Jesus is preaching? Believe you me, I do. I find it far too demanding. These beatitudes, these attitudes to anger, lust and divorce, the truthfulness, the generosity, the love to enemies that Jesus asks of us. But, you know, you ain't heard nothing yet. Jesus has been ramping up his standards for living throughout this chapter. And then he comes to this astonishing final verse. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There is no compromise there. 
Four times in the book of, book of Leviticus, God says, be holy for I am holy. And Jesus is echoing that in this saying, be perfect for your father in heaven is perfect. That's why sanctification is a process. We're not there yet. We're not the finished article. We're not yet God's masterpiece. Paul says in Philippians, I have not already been made perfect, but I press on. Forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. One day, after the resurrection in heaven, you will be perfect. Meanwhile, you and I, with Christ living in our hearts and with the help of the Holy Spirit, seek to live and to live out these attitudes that we find in Matthew chapter 5. We must be transparently honest people. We should be generous persons who don't want to get their own back all the time. We should be loving people who pray for and do good to our enemies who wish to do us harm. Let me close with a benediction. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no man evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, honour all people, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be among us and remain with us always. Amen.